Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the International Society of Hypertension podcast. So I am Augusto Montezano, or Guru, and I'm a Walton Fellow uh, in Cardiovascular Medicine here at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And um, I have with me uh, the Associate Professor uh, Francine Marcus from Monash University, Australia. So Francine and I are both from the Mentorship and Training Committee from the International Society of Hypertension. And we are so excited today because we have the pleasure to interview Musha Stecklings, who is a professor of cardiovascular pharmacology at the University of Southern Denmark. So Musha is very special to us because she's also the chair of the International Society of Hypertension Women in Hypertension Committee. And Musha, welcome to the podcast. And we're very excited to be able to have this chat with you about mentorship. Uh, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you very so, much for the nice introduction, Guto, and for the invitation. Francine, I'm, I'm also very excited to be here. Not that used to interviews, let's see how it goes. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's a great pleasure to be here. It'll be fun, you see. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Musha, just to get uh, as it started, can you tell us a little bit more uh, how did you get involved with hypertension? and then later on with the International Society of Hypertension. Yeah, sure. So as often, I think in careers and life, a lot of uh, things happening by chance. <laughs> Actually, when I finalized my studies at medical school, my big goal was to become a dermatologist, but my grades were not good enough. But I knew a guy, <laughs> I think many-ish uh, members know, because he's also now on the... Um, on the council, that's Thomas Unger. And I knew him from my pharmacology courses. And I ran into him in the corridor somewhere. And he's, he said, oh, we are looking for students in the lab. So that's how I got involved in pharmacology and in hypertension research. It was really running into somebody I knew on the corridor, which already I think tells how important it is to build networks. <laughs> But later, actually, I had a dermatology training. I was uh, 10 years in dermatology, and then I came back to pharmacology and hypertension research uh, because by that time, I found how much I liked that. <laughs> yeah, and Ish, uh, how did I uh, get in touch with Ish? That was also through Thomas Unger because in 2008, when I worked with him, Ish was uh, hosted in Germany, in Berlin, and he was one of the main organizers. And I also was in the background a little bit involved in organizing the meeting. But that was the first time. And, and then I just continued um, attending that meeting. It was just one of my meetings where I used to go to. And it's good, right? Because that shows like how important, not only like how sometimes lucky we are if like a laboratory that we're part of, it's organizing a, a conference or something and you get involved because you start to learn new aspects of this career right absolutely yeah you you learn many aspects you learn to know people which is so incredibly important and also just fun and exciting and nice and of course you know a lot about uh, how it works to organize a conference all all the things happening in the background that usually you don't see and it's so uh yeah important and just exciting to learn this Definitely. And uh, Musha, um, as uh, uh, Guto mentioned, you chair the Women in uh, Hypertension Committee. 
And, uh, and sometimes we can find that setting committees can be, time, uh, can be a lot time consuming, uh, but it's also really important for career progression as we're just talking about networking and getting to know uh, others in our society and our research environment. Um, can you tell us how your participation in the ISH committees has helped you to advance your career? Yeah, as you say, that goes into the same direction. It's about uh, learning to know people, growing your network, uh, just being involved in a society opens a lot of opportunities for uh, sharing sessions, giving talks um, within the society, but also through the new contacts, of course. Uh, it gives just visibility and recognition. So in, in that regard, it certainly was also, I think, helpful for my career. Uh, otherwise, or not otherwise, what I, I can totally, or I totally agree to what you're saying, it's very time consuming. The Women Hypertension Research Committee has grown immensely now during the last term from, I think before we were six or eight people, now we are almost 20, we have three working groups. All of these meetings and activities have to be coordinated and it's very time consuming. And uh, a big motivation is actually not so much anymore to grow my career, but rather now that I uh, reached a certain point in my career, so I'm on like safe grounds with my position and so on. Now I can take time and give things back to people. So I dedicate my time to help others to also grow their careers. That's a big motivation behind this. Oh, that's wonderful. That's very nice to hear. And, and, and that's like a great point, right? Because um, it's the paid forward uh, system that like we all uh, should be looking for, forward to. And it's, it's, it's great for, to hear that from somebody established like, established like you, uh, Musha. And, and take us like to our next topic, let's say, which is the mentoring component, uh, which me and Francine and another members of our amazing committee represents. Uh, so touching base on mentoring, like how would you define your mentorship experience if you have to define in one word? I thought about that before, <laughs> but <laughs> it's always one word that comes into my mind. I didn't have to think a lot. It's just awarding. And um, yeah. Great. And Maybe there is a better it, word in English that I can't think of. <laughs> no, but I yeah. think like that's an amazing one. It is. Uh, it is true. And do you think, I think like I, your answer probably is going to be yes, but do you think the mentoring is important for someone's career? And why do you think it's so important if it's a yes? Yeah, sure. I think mentoring is very important because I think in our profession, in our careers, there are so many unwritten rules and things you have to know to be, to be successful that the young people just don't know. So I think it's really crucial that they have more experienced people to guide them and to point out what is important, what is what you should focus on. And yeah, this what helps you to advance your career. And Musha, yeah. when in your career did you realize you needed a mentor? Yeah, that, that's one of the more difficult questions I've been wondering that myself. And I think actually that when I was earlier in my career, that term wasn't around that much. No, I wasn't really aware that there's anything like mentoring. It was 
much more than nowadays, things just happened. And if you were lucky, you came across a person who helped to, you know, open up his, her own networks or give this kind of advice. So what type of grant to go for, or I don't know, <laughs> how to write a publication, all these kind of things. It either it happened or it didn't happen, but uh, this term was not around so much. That's why I, at that stage, when I needed a mentor most, I didn't really wonder whether I need one. I, I didn't know that this exists. So now it's much more uh, apparent or around, of course. And uh, yeah, and I, I think by the time I really understood what mentoring is, I realized I needed, <laughs> and I, I needed sometimes up to now. So it's still, as you, you two certainly know, and some others also, uh, I think it's now eight years ago or even nine, that I changed my research environment. I went from Germany to Denmark, so another country, another research culture. And there are still so many things that I don't understand how it works there. So often I still need somebody to guide me the way. So I think yeah, no, it never think, ends. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's the same thing for me here, right? Because moving from Canada to the UK is like, there are two completely different systems. and. Mm -hmm. uh, and you need to, to get mentors or people to help to understand how to navigate. And I think for you, Francine, probably the same, right? Brazil yes. to Australia. Oh, but, yeah, but I have been here now for 15 years. But even just moving institutions uh, two years ago, the systems are completely different. And I, I'm still lost many times looking for help. And, and people are extremely kind and generous with their time. Yeah. Yeah. And Musha, do you still have mentors these days? And have your mentors changed through the years? Yeah, I think I still have mentors. So um, I think one of my strongest mentoring experiences was actually through Ish and the Women Hypertension Network through Rian Tuis. I think she has mentored many of us, <laughs> more or less. So she does that a lot. And that, that was one of my strongest experiences. Now in Denmark, when we're more talking about changing the research environment, the institution or even the country, uh, I feel I'm currently mostly mentored by a person who's younger than me, but just more familiar with the system. <laughs> so it's not so much about a more experienced person or older, more senior person mentoring a younger one. Uh, it's more somebody who's more familiar with the system now also helping me. And that's also kind of mentoring, I think. And Musha, you mentioned that uh, now you're more, uh, well, no, you're more, but like, you, you started like to become like to be a mentor and you wanted to to mentor uh, people. So now seeing you as a mentor, how would you describe your mentoring style? And it would be good if you can give us like an examples of how you helped like uh, your mentees to accomplish something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think most of the mentoring I'm doing is with my students in my own lab, students at all levels. And what I'm trying to do is when a new student uh, joins my group that I try to build a very trustful relationship so that the person knows, okay, this student can always turn to me and ask so that I'm always open to listen. And yeah, they, they should know that I regard this also as important that I'm somebody to guide them. Um, and then, of course, I'm trying to help them to build 
independence and self-confidence in our system according to where they are in their career. So I'm, I'm always trying to adjust to challenge them a bit more and a bit more and a bit more depending on how they advance with their, yeah, with their career. One, one thing that I really like to do and that I find very rewarding also for myself is uh, to um, give them first opportunity to present at international meetings. So in, in Europe, we have this small society, Guto, you know it, the European Council of Cardiovascular Research. And I think that's an excellent meeting for first presentations, first time sharing, for networking, because it has a very informal atmosphere. Um, and I'm, I'm always trying my best to even my bachelor students to give them an opportunity to go there and present and then prepare the presentation with them and yeah, just try to help them also psychologically to keep to cope with the situation, having to present and so on, work on their language, all, all these kind of things. And almost every time I see that it makes them grow this experience. I mean, you also know that with your students, but that, mm. that's just a classical situation. Ish would be the next step. That's a bigger meeting, of course, much bigger. But to start with a small one and then the very first time for the students. Um, yeah, I've done that many times and it's always really just nice. <laughs> I really like that you mentioned about confidence and growing the confidence of your mentees. And uh, I think that's something so important because for many of us in science, I think one of the main moments as a student even is that when you realize that you know very little and everybody seems to know more than you, but that's not the reality. And many of us then go on to suffer foster uh, syndrome. And I think it's so important to give them the ability and, and the opportunity to grow their confidence and, and grow their idea that they actually know a lot and they have already learned a lot. Yeah, absolutely. That's like a standard sentence I keep telling them. I think you yeah. are the expert on what you're presenting. Mm -hmm. You can yeah, be proud absolutely. of what you've done. And yeah. achieved, yeah. And um, Musha, what traits do you think a good mentee has? Yeah, that's another difficult question to really put it in a few words, but it has to do something with what I said before. I think a mentee should be a re really good listener and very empathic. So to, to really recognize at what stage of a career a student is to challenge them in the right way. So not too little, not too much. And, and also just an open person, so not too much self-centered, but very open for the needs. And yeah, just also this other personality they are dealing with. And how about from the student perspective, what do you think makes a good student or a good mentee? From the student perspective? Yeah, um, what makes a good student? What makes someone that is, ah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the student, of course, has to be somehow to accept this interplay between mentor and mentee from the other side. It, it also needs to be an open person, somebody uh, willing to take advice. But uh, I think with all the many students I interacted with, it maybe only happened once that I came across somebody who was not willing to somehow listen and... and uh, yeah, incorporate and 
the advice into what they were doing. I mean, they don't have to really uh, incorporate it hundred percent, but uh, just just the willingness to get into a dialogue. I think this openness has to be there from both sides, and then it works. And should like I just wanted to ask you something about like because when I see like an interview panels for uh, to hire someone new for the lab. We always see like that the person that we're interviewing has this need to prove to us that they're good, they're amazing, uh, their CV is good, and they're going to add something to your lab. But I always worry if they are also thinking on their side of the story, like because to me it has to be like a win-win situation, right? So they need to make our lab to move forward, but also our lab needs to help them and make them move forward their career, and when we ask them to ask a question or like what would they like to know about our lab, is it still like a very low number of people that try to understand uh, how the training environment would be good for them. If like, you know, try to see if it's a good match between us and them. So my question to you is in situations like this, like an interview when you're visiting a group or you're trying to negotiate like your next step with a, a new group, how can you, how would you, uh, what would you tell people on what's the best way to identify that that group or that environment will be good for your training? Yeah, I think that's not easy to answer. Honestly, what I do when I'm trying is get a sense of whether people are simply happy there. And I think it's possible to sense that. So whether yeah you have the perception that they are just working and having fun and they are themselves and they don't feel I don't know under a lot of pressure but they're just working because they uh, they are just enthusiastic about what they are doing and they're not doing it because they're pressurized i i think that's possible to sense so it's important i think when when i go to another lab when i applied for jobs, I tried to talk to people there and just get a sense on the atmosphere. And, and it I must think be that's hard. that. Hmm? I don't know, go ahead. Yeah, I think there are uh, maybe two main styles of how people run their groups. And that, that's, of course, simplified. But I think some encourage their co-workers to grow their independence to bring in own ideas and so on and to maybe uh, pursue their own projects very early on and others I think they regard their uh, co-workers as people working for them so mm -hmm. they get a lot of pressure to achieve the goals of the, the head of the lab and I wouldn't want to work in a lab of the second category because it doesn't make you grow so that's, of course, difficult to find out with asking questions. That's not a question you can ask in an interview. But I think you can sense this by talking to people in the lab. Yeah, and I was going to say that like it must be so hard now in COVID times, right? Because some people may have the pressure that they need a job because of COVID. They're losing the position that they have. So there's that pressure plus family and you know the need to bring money into your to the table like the bread if you should be the breadwinner or something like that uh, but at the same time with zoom uh, interviews 
it's so not personal that sometimes it's hard for you to get like you know those nuances like to see like you know uh oh is this supervisor is this position really like it's going to be a good environment for me and then i agree with you like maybe uh this is why it's so important for you to have a network and then for you to be able to talk to people that knows the lab and knows that environment and try to get like yeah. even if it's a little picture of that that helps you to move uh forward with your decision or negotiations yeah so it's it's key yeah, absolutely yeah. Absolutely. What I mean, as a young person, I'm sorry. No, no, go for it, go for it. I think as a young person, it's of course also important that you select a lab that is just doing good quality research. But I think that's not the only criterion because you need an environment where you can grow. I think that's yeah. also, that's maybe even more important than yeah. just high impact. Yeah, yeah. So what we have been doing is that um, I usually would have an interview with a prospective student or team member. And then even if it's via Zoom, we'll have a session that like one of our lab meetings and invite them to participate. So you see how they interact with others. But then I usually leave and leave them with the rest of my team so they can ask questions about how I am as a supervisor, how our team works, but then my team can also see how they could potentially be working together so that uh, that person actually fits in well. So, yeah, so you can still do that. It's not the same, definitely not the same, but it can still uh, be done. I think just the fact that you offer this opportunity is telling something about how you lead your group. So <laughs> that's, that's fantastic that you're doing that. And um, and I think something like for students when they're in a situation like this, um, what happens is that a lot of them find uh, lab heads and other people, um, like other academics, let's say, quite intimidating. Uh, I remember like the first conferences, the first ISH meetings that I have been to, but I just, I was terrified of talking to anyone. And there are certain people that still scare me. Um, I was wondering, Musha, if you ever felt that way and how did you do to overcome a situation like that when you really wanted to go and talk to someone and you were a little bit shy, but you really got the courage to do it? I'm afraid that when I was younger, I probably avoided these situations. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nowadays, when I have to talk to somebody and I don't know, yeah, do not feel, feel really good about the personal interaction part of that interaction with this person. I'm trying to tell myself, I mean, there must be a reason why I want to talk to this person. And it must, the only reason is probably that it's something about the science also. So it's something not personal. So, and then I, I keep telling to myself, okay, I keep this on a totally factual level now. The personal aspect of this interaction is not of interest here. Um, and I, I just talk on a factual basis and trying to get, I don't know, the information I want, want to get. And I try to not make the personal aspect or the negative feelings also in, interfere too much. It, of course, it's still difficult, but that's at least what I'm trying to do. And that's good advice, yeah. I always try to remind myself, people, 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 they're just people, yeah. Um, sure. Exactly. It, it gets, it, yeah, I, I found it got slightly easier with time. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it is definitely hard, I think. Um, and it, the recipe for it, I don't think there's like a perfect one, but Musha, your approach sounds like, you know, a good one for at least for you to not be shy in the first step and then move on from there um, mm -hmm. and get something out of it. Musha, yeah. um, you're the chair of the Women in Hypertension Committee, which I think it, it is a very important uh, committee, especially nowadays. Uh, can you tell us like a little bit of more about the committee in terms of like its history, like what we'd like to achieve and why it's so important for this specific committee to exist? Yeah, um, so the, the Women Hypertension Research Committee was founded again by Rianne Tuis, important person for us. Uh, and at the time when she was ish president, so at that time, she could really uh, push this forward. Um, and I think she founded the committee because she realized that women were simply underrepresented in the society on all levels. So starting with the committees, the council, the executive committee, um, we still do not have a third women or female members on these committees as we have female members in the society. And I think at, at that point, it was even worse. And the underrepresentation was also um, very evident at, at the meetings, the number of or percentage of speakers, of chairs, and also awardees. So it's still, when you look at the main awards of the society, it, the, these awards went almost exclusively to males. So there's still a lot to do. <laughs> But uh, she made the start, so she uh, realized there has to be something done. And the number one thing I think is that to raise awareness that the women are underrepresented and that this needs to be changed. Yeah, and, and Rian achieved a lot in that regard. Um, the first meeting after founding the Women Hypertension Research Committee, the first ISH meeting was in Beijing. And I think there we had almost 50% female speakers and chairs. So there, the males were underrepresented, if you want, because females, as I said, are only uh, around a third uh, of, of the members of the society, which we need to grow, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think now with the upcoming um, virtual meeting, it's not that good anymore, but it's still more female speakers and chairs than in previous times. And the really important thing is that there is this awareness now. So the, the organizers just take this into account when planning the meeting, that women have to be included. So that's a major, major change that has been made already. And, and, and I we think also have is. some... Hmm? Uh, no, I was going to say, like, it is changing because I remember, like, on Twitter, like, completely unrelated to Ish, um, there was, like, a, I think, like, a, um, I don't know if it was, a, I think it was a workshop, and then someone pointed out that every single person in the workshop was a man, and then the thing is, uh, the thing that I loved about Twitter, whoever was uh, commenting, they not only questioned the organizers why, like, you know, they didn't try to find women that were as good as those men, why the speakers didn't realize that once they saw it. So the awareness now is not being only asked for whoever organized. 
the change of the behavior is asked like for the organization, for the speakers, for people that attend. So like everybody has to be speaking the same, uh, have the same voice. And I think like that's great. It, it, to me, it's, it looks like it's changing. There is a lot to be done, uh, but at least we are moving forward like in the right direction, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not that long ago, I think that what that people didn't question the, the percentage of uh, a proportion of females and males at a conference and, and at the committees and everything. But now, uh, yeah, there is awareness. So now uh, it's being considered. And that's a big change. Yeah. Just like, uh, do you and think they, that's because of the intimidation aspect of like our career? Like, you know, sometimes like uh, us think that professors know better. And then we're like, sort of like have this mentality of that never question their decisions or choices like do you think like the intimidation of the the word professor influences this mm, maybe in a way but i th i think the major problem was that uh, in yeah i don't know i can't really say a number maybe 30 20 30 years ago at the meeting so there there were many males and also in the labs and everywhere, it was very male dominating. And the whole system, like also in industry or so, has been built as a male system and nobody has questioned it. So people were just moving along in the system and nobody questioned it. Uh, and, and that has changed, I think, with more people, more females um, yeah, coming into research and also getting more getting advanced in their careers, um, they started to raise their voice and say, hey, we are also here. <laughs> we mm -hmm. need to be considered. So it's a slow development. And, and suddenly there's this awareness, which just hadn't been there before because people were just moving on the way they always did. So I think that that really is a major, a major, major what progress and uh, achievement that this has changed. And Moshe, you mentioned also that your committee has grown enormously in the last uh, year. Uh, what are the three main uh, working groups that you mentioned? What do they do? Yeah, we have, uh, oh no, I have to think, three working groups. We have, no, we have four, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, now maybe I have to say one more thing because, um, what I said so far is what uh, Rian did for the committee, that she really worked on a better awareness and better representation of women within the society and at the society's meeting. And when I took over, I tried to add something to this. And that was very much inspired by a session at the Beijing ISH meeting, a session that was organized by the Women Hypertension Research Committee. And we always have a, a session about career development, where a more senior person tells the audience how they got to where they are with a focus uh, on also the challenges. So just telling them it has not always been easy also for a now successful person. And in Beijing, a lot of young people got up afterwards, young women. And it seemed they were so relieved that they, that they had a just the opportunity to talk about their own challenges and problems and that they had somebody to listen to them. So I thought, okay, that this is a major need and we need to work on this 
also. So we, we need to create a network, uh, not just the committee, not just organize sessions and give out awards, but we need to go into a dialogue with the women in our society and offer yeah, just opportunities to talk. And for that, we have working groups, which will, which are, they are now starting to organize such meetings that senior and junior females can meet and talk to each other. For that, we have a mentoring committee. We also have a so-called outreach committee uh, to also reach out and offer such opportunities in other societies, but of course, also on the science level to organize joint sessions. We have, of course, a communication working group um, for being present on social media, for organizing, I hope, ish life, is school with the other committees to help there. Um, but what we are also doing now, and I'm almost a little taken by surprise that we are so active, is doing science. That we are really, uh, we are working on a paper about hypertension in women, all aspects, because we realized there is no review that really addresses all the aspects of hypertension in women. And we are trying to write this now. So it's, it's uh, quite broad what we are doing. Yeah, but that's very and I think that, comprehensive. And, and that's very important, right? Because I think like in the latest uh, guidelines uh, that the women, you know, the differences that like the differences in treatment of women wasn't approached because of the, the lack of uh, understanding or the lack of like research on it. So that, that's very interesting. I'm looking forward to read it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. That was actually the main motivation to start writing such a review that all the guidelines are simply saying that they're not saying much because there is no evidence-based uh, there are no evidence-based data on how to treat women or all aspects of hypertension the, the big studies have not been powered to really get um, yeah data on hypertension and treatment of hypertension in women that's of course a huge task for the future that needs to be changed but that's a really big one, of course. Yeah. 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 And uh, what do you think are the biggest barriers that we have around diversity and inclusion? And how do you think we can change that in hypertension research? I think the biggest barrier has been this lack of awareness. And I think we are on a good way forward to overcome this barrier. So as soon as people start talking about this issue, we are on a way to solving it. And I think we are on that way now. So I think, I think the biggest issue has been overcome. We just need to keep on working on it now. That's, that's really nice to hear, yeah. And on that note, Musha, do you have any advice for women in hypertension research or research? Yeah, that's of course, again, difficult to give that one <laughs> advice. But uh, I think as women, we still have a problem with our, how we were grown, our personalities. We tend to be shy. We tend to, yeah, uh, we, now this, what you mentioned, the imposter syndrome, I think it's more a problem of women than of, of males. So we have a self-confidence. Uh, problem and and i think the, the biggest advice is just 
believe in yourself. So I don't know, get support from others to help with, help with your self-confidence, work on your self-confidence yourself and believe in yourself. Because I mean, of course, you know, it also makes a difference in how you are seen by the others. If you are very, very shy, you're just not as respected as much as if you have a sound amount of self-confidence. So I, I think it's just uh, very important to work on that. And also for mentors to support women to just believe in themselves and go their own way. Yeah, I think, I think that's really um, fundamentally important. Yeah, so finding good mentors and good sponsors that can help uh, women to grow in their careers. Yeah. But also to be aware that this is something to work on oneself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really nice. And um, our final question to you today is related to the pandemic. And um, we just wanted to see if you had any ideas of what our community can do to better support junior researchers from the society during the pandemic. Mm. Yeah, that, that's also a difficult topic, of course. And it's so important that uh, you name the problem. I think that's the number one step to do. And I think with uh, the new um, like online activities is life is is school and so on I, th I think it should become a topic also there so that just the females who are affected by that and I think there are many of course the workload with regard to childcare and so on is again I think is now again mainly shifted to females and and I, again I think the number one thing is an awareness problem so they they need a voice we have to help them to just be that this is recognized that they have they are under this extreme challenge right now and then later i think in later stages it will influence their cvs more than males and that's another thing i think where we need to keep the awareness up that this should be considered later when females compete with males that the cvs of females are probably more um, yeah, impaired by this crisis than males. So we need to work to keep this in everybody's mind and that it's considered. Yeah, so remove some of the unconscious bias even when assessing CVs in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Misha. I think that was all the questions we had today. Thank you, Guto, for joining us as well. This is really wonderful. Really enjoy the chat. And I'm sure everybody at home listening uh, elsewhere in the world is going to enjoy it too. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I, I have to thank you. It was really fun, as you said, Guto, as you predicted. Really nice talking to you. Maybe if I can say a last word, I forgot to say, mention it earlier uh, when I spoke about, um, yeah, the idea that we need to talk more to other people as a women hypertension committee that we need to reach out to other women our society we will launch now the women hypertension research network where everybody in the society can register their interest we will have have that um, communicated through the different channels and ish very soon 
of course, males and females are invited to register, and then we will try to have a more closer uh, dialogue with them in the future so that everybody can really feel included in this work of uh, Women Hypertension Research Committee and Network. Fantastic opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that shows um, a powerhouse that you are driving all these different initiatives uh, trying to change uh, the society and also not just the society, but the field for uh, us working in hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And uh, we, uh, I say we as all the women uh, in the world working in this area, incredibly grateful. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Guto. Yeah. Um, oh, thank you, guys.